production and distribution of City Club Forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and hello, good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I am Chris Quinn. I am the editor of Cleveland.com, the president of Advance Ohio, and a member of the board of directors for the City Club. I'm pleased to introduce the forum today, a continuation of our ongoing conversation on how to build a stronger regional economy. It's no secret that the United States is experiencing a rapid and profound transition from an industrial economy to a digital, global, knowledge-based, and service-based economy. Like much of America, our city and region has struggled with this economic transition, more in fact than most other similar cities. And on June 8th, John Pinney stood in front of a packed house here to disrupt our status quo and, and launch a conversation. Um, he, his point was, we're lacking in a bunch of ways, and that has sparked a series of conversations throughout the region um, difficult conversations, soul-searching conversations that seem ultimately poised to bring about an organized effort to, to bring improvement, some things that might emerge in the fall and, and look very likely to be inclusive of all voices. But for many, the ideas presented on June 8th weren't new. The Fund for Our Economic Future outlined in its recent The Two Tomorrows report the dire need for us to choose a more equitable economic path or risk mediocrity. In fact, many organizations are making this the focus of their work. Additionally, similar conversations in the past launched such initiatives, such as Cleveland Tomorrow's Voices and Choices and Vibrant Neo 2040, um, the plain dealer about 15, 16 years ago, really uh, began a lot of this which, with the, the series called The Quiet Crisis. So where do we go from here? What efforts are there that are currently underway that should be strengthened or scrapped? Who should lead and what should the priorities be? That's what we're here to discuss. It's entirely appropriate that since this conversation began at the City Club, that it continue here today. Moderating the conversation today is my former colleague at the Plain Dealer, uh, the very talented Michelle Jarbeau. Uh, she previously worked for the News and Record newspaper in North Carolina, and she obtained a graduate certificate in urban real estate development and finance from Cleveland State University and is wrapping up a term as chairwoman of the National Association of Real Estate Editors. Michelle, I turn the forum over to you. Thanks very much, Chris, and thanks for the opportunity. Can you all hear me okay? Okay, and I'm gonna apologize in advance because I have a miserable summer cold, so if I sneeze or cough, just try to ignore me. Um, so I, I am really privileged to be up here today. I'm going to briefly introduce our panelists and we'll, then we'll launch right into what hopefully will be a pretty vibrant conversation. So sitting immediately to my left is uh, Bethia Burke, the Vice President from the Fund for Our Economic Future, the organization that produced the Two Tomorrows report that Chris referenced. Then we have Don Graves, Jr., Director of Corporate Responsibility and Community Relations from KeyBank, um, who's a Cleveland native who moved back here earlier this year after about 30 years away. 
Um, okay, last year. And, and then um, next over, Blaine Griffin, uh, City of Cleveland Councilman, Ward 6 on the east side. And then Brian Hall, Senior Vice President of the Greater Cleveland Partnership and Executive Director for the Commission on Economic Inclusion. Um, so I'm just going to launch right in. And um, to start off, I think it might be interesting to see what each of you think about the state of the region's economy right now, because there have been a lot of lists written by people from outside of the region saying, you know, we're succeeding, we're failing, what are we doing? So, so in a short you know, phrase or sentence, how would you characterize the state of Greater Cleveland's economy, starting with Bethia and moving along? I would say that we are vastly undershooting our potential. Don? Much better to be Cleveland now than Detroit five years ago. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Plain? Transitioning yet struggling for an identity. Okay. And Brian? Uh, I think progressing, but not for everyone. Okay. So um, I'm going to jump back to what Bethia said, and I, I guess I want you to elaborate a little bit about you know, falling short of, of potential. I think that we have a lot of baseline assets when we think about our, our institutions, our corporations, our people, um, but we haven't yet figured out how to bring it together in a way that continues to regenerate the economy and actually connect, um, to Brian's point, actually connects growth that happens to people regardless of race or place. Mm -hmm. um, Don, you said, at least we're not Detroit five years ago, we get compared to a lot of cities, uh, favorably, unfavorably. Why Detroit? Why five years ago? And what does that tell us? Well, building off of what Bethia said, we have a lot of assets here, uh, a lot to, uh, that we can build off of. And I just, uh, prior to coming back to Cleveland, I was in the Obama administration, and one of my jobs was to, as the point person for the recovery of Detroit. So when I took that job, I saw a city that had 85,000 blighted uh, and vacant properties, 45,000 45, broken streetlights. It had a 911 system that uh, had a response, average response time of over an hour. Uh, it had a public transit system that e effectively was non-functional, meaning that it was an hour, an hour and a half, two hours for residents to get to their jobs. It was a city that lost about 250,000 people in the span of a decade. Cleveland is not Detroit. So there are a lot of problems in Cleveland, just like there are in a lot of other cities like Cleveland. But Cleveland is in a significantly better place, and we just need to find ways to capitalize on all the strengths, the resources, the assets, the human capital that we have in the city. People also say, well, okay, Cleveland's not Columbus, Cleveland's not Pittsburgh, why aren't we Columbus? Why aren't we Pittsburgh? And is that a fair comparison to be making when we're looking at economic growth and the trajectory? Yes and no. Um, we always have to look at other cities uh, for comparison. What, most importantly, to understand how they got to where they are and the trajectory, trajectory that they're going in. But uh, we also have to do a full assessment. It's been done countless times here. We have to do an assessment of where we are and get everyone in the community on the same page about what we have as resources and assets. So it's absolutely important for us to look at cities like Columbus, Pittsburgh, uh, Detroit, New Orleans, 
Uh, it's also important for us to remember that we are a global city. We're not just competing against our, uh, our uh, fellow communities in Ohio or in the Midwest. We're competing against the Shanghais of the world. So we have to look at, at where we are relative to all of the different communities that are like us across the globe and the, the cities that we aspire to be. I'm going to throw this one kind of following on that out to um, Brian and Blaine first. So when we're talking about success or failure, how do we define that? Because it seems like people have a lot of different definitions of what makes a city economically successful, what makes the people economically successful or not successful. So I, I would say to the point of my two colleagues that we do have to take inventory of our assets. And we also have to be careful at how we compare ourselves to other cities. Other cities are thriving or challenged for certain reasons, and they may not be the same as ours. But one of the commonalities <coughs> across a number of cities we compare ourselves to is the racial inequity that's in our city. And I think it absolutely holds us back. And in the work that I do, we are trying to shift our thinking from how do we grow the region and grow it inclusively to how does growing the region inclusively grow the region? And I think we've got to flip it on its head and turn our attention to the 52% or so folks in Cleveland who are by Bethia and the funds uh, for the economic futures numbers, um, far behind on income, on employment, and on wealth, and realize that driving income, wealth, and employment to that group will grow our region. And that's the same across a number of cities that we compare ourselves to, even though the assets might be different. Blaine, you're out working in the neighborhoods, dealing with everyday people on an everyday basis. How would you define success or failure when it comes to economic growth? Well, I think right now we have a Dickensian model of a city. We have the best of times in certain areas, and we have the worst of times in certain areas. Mm -hmm. And like everybody's saying, we have to find a way to better connect the two. Uh, in the area that I serve, we have one of the most wealthy institutions in the Cleveland Clinic. And we have to make ways and find ways in order to make sure that other people can um, you know, thrive off of that success. And, and, and I tell people oftentimes that Cleveland would only be uh, great when we uh, have the most struggling and poor neighborhoods that we have in our neighborhood that are also prospering. So we have to look at things like higher wages. Uh, we have to look at things like making sure that there's inclusivity. Um, and we also have to make sure that we train people for the demand-driven demand jobs that are available there right now. So how do we actually do those things? Because I know we had a conversation prior to this panel um, where the comment came up that sometimes we talk a good game in Northeast Ohio. We have this awareness that, OK, we have all of these issues and we need to tackle them. But when it comes to actually executing, that's where we fall short. So some of these issues that you've outlined in terms of inequity and, and economic growth versus decline, how do we tangibly tackle those things? I'll jump in just to say, um, to further my point, I think the, you know, turning on its head the idea that we have to be inclusive as we grow the region to inclusion will grow the region. I also think we have to be willing to take risks like we do with anything else. When we decided that we wanted to be a biotech city, we invested in biotech and we found ways and we brought partners together and we created things that could have failed and some probably did. When we invest in inclusion, we've got to be willing to do the same thing. And I would argue that there's no other city that we can go at and say they're doing it great because the, the statistics are the same everywhere. And so we have a chance to be the leader, the innovator in this regard. And I may sound like a one-trick pony, but I just believe if 
of your population is not performing at the same level as the other 50%, then why should we be talking about anything else? Bethia, the fund made some specific recommendations related to issues we should look at, perhaps approaches we should take. Can you talk a little bit about that for people who might not have fully read the report? Sure, you should fully read it. It's really good. Um, <laughs> but if you don't, um, I think that uh, a lot of it is in what Brian just said, which is when we think about growth, that we think about inclusive economic growth and that we we hold co-equal these ideas that growth matters and opportunity matters, and you can't subordinate one. You can't say, we're gonna go after jobs and worry about who's gonna get those jobs later, um, because that doesn't solve itself. So one is thinking about a mind shift, mindset shift where we're thinking about growth and opportunity, and in that, that we're deliberately addressing these issues of systemic exclusion, um, where we're, we have these issues where blacks and whites aren't facing the same outcomes, and we need to recognize that and build that into the way that we're thinking about success. That's one, one set of things that we address in the two tomorrows. And the other is that as we think of strategies, that we're thinking about integrated strategies. So not only do we not just think about growth, but that we need to worry about job creation, job preparation, and job access. Um, that we need to think about the fundamentals that make the economy strong and then build those up in a way that regenerates growth and then connects that growth to people. Um, so how can we, workforce development was one item you touched on there, how can we tackle that in a way that actually makes sense, that's driven by employers' real needs and not by some fuzzy concept of what types of jobs we think might need to be created? Yeah, I think that um, there are two things in your question. One is around this question of uh, employer needs, and there are some steps being made to try and aggregate the understanding of employer needs in manufacturing and IT and in healthcare as we advance these um, sector-based strategies and intermediaries that's happening right now in Cuyahoga County. I think the other thing is when we think about job preparation strategies and we think about meeting employer needs, we're also challenging businesses to think about the jobs as they're connecting to people. Um, across the nation, some 60% of people living in poverty are also working, uh, which means that we're not just solving for an employer needs problem and we're not just solving for a skills problem, but we're also needing to ask ourselves and ask our businesses, what do your jobs look like? Are they, are they leading people on a pathway to advancement or are we trapping people in poverty? I think that, that's really important. The, it's, you can't look at these issues in silos, and I think that's too often, not just in Cleveland, but too often in many places, folks have looked at, oh, I'm gonna deal with this challenge, workforce development and training for one specific set of issues. No, you have to look at uh, a whole range of factors that go into it, so uh, benefits is one, wages is, is another, the types of jobs we're training for is another issue, but also all the systems that we have to support a family and support workers. So transportation systems, health systems, all those components are factors in making sure that the community can succeed and the individuals who we're training and hoping to take these jobs that we believe are coming uh, will be ready and, and able to take those jobs. So we can't look at any one factor. Um, so I solicited some questions from readers on Twitter before this, and the, the one that people responded to the most was, um, how can leaders here better discern between buzzy fads that go nowhere and real opportunities? So I'm gonna throw that out to whoever wants to take it. I think be consistent. I think that there are some things that are unrealized in the biotech industry that we have not realized yet. 
Uh, I think that we do need to be innovative. One of the things that the entire community should be uh, buzzing around is the film industry. We should be advocating with the state in order to have a $100 million tax credit in order to make sure that we do better training for grips and some of those backstage uh, you know, uh, jobs that are available in the film industry. So we have to be more diverse in the economy of what we're looking at trying to do and not just look at a one-trick pony, but we also have to be consistent and follow through on some of the things we've already started to try to, uh, try to do. Consistency and follow-through is an interesting point because I know I've had people say to me over the years when I've been reporting on economic development that we get really excited about one particular issue or industry and we focus on that for a few years and then we're like, okay, we did that, now we're going to move on to something else, but maybe we need to be spending more time and doing the unsexy stuff. What do you, what do you guys think about that? Do we, do we maintain focus for long enough or are we distracted by the next shiny thing? Both things. Happen. Both things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think that we have had some strong consistency and focus. I think this uh, example of the biosciences industry is a great one, where BioEnterprise has been around for some 15 years, really focused on growing that sector, um, and there's been a commitment of institutions to that organization to help with that work for that period of time. It's been great. It's now throwing off a thousand good jobs a year. At the same time, we have no shortage of ideas coming up, um, and I think that uh, we have, in the last 18 months, heard a lot of great ideas around, be that um, blockchain or uh, additive manufacturing or cybersecurity or Internet of Things, um, uh, the plug and play that just went in in the Global Center. There's a lot of things out there, and I think that there's been uh, a need to focus and think about where we want to put our collective energy so that we're not bouncing from one shiny thing to the next. Um, but we're building it intentionally in the same way that we thought about with biosciences. I'd offer a friendly amendment to sure. that. That this is, I, I've been away for 30 years, so I apologize, but I'm just going to be a little bit blunt. There are leaders in this town who don't like each other. And I don't understand. Hmm. We can all have great ideas, and we should pursue good ideas, and we should support one another. And we should be. We should work with one another in ways that we lift each other up. This city isn't big enough for us to not like each other. So we, we, we have to figure out ways that we can. We have to find ways that we can support each other while also having, uh, being accepting of constructive criticism. That's, that's other cities that, that are succeeding. Yeah, they, they may not like each other individually, but they set those differences aside and say, we have to work for the collective good. And that's where we have to be as a city. So I think we can pursue a lot of great ideas, but we have to lift each other up while we're doing it. We can't try and tear each other down. So that, I, I take a little bit of issue with the, the fad, uh, uh, usage of the term fad, because I think that means that someone is saying, oh, that idea is bad, so we should, but we should pursue these other ideas. I was going to add to that as well. I think the idea that you have a region that has the ability to, to do multiple things is the right thing. And I think there should be some uh, room for innovation or experimentation on things that may or may not work. But a process for deciding where to put the resources when it's determined that those things may not be working as well. But if you don't take the chances, you may not discover the next opportunity. So I think you have to have both. And it certainly helps if people like each other, or at least have a willingness to work together. And we were talking in between that, the last session and this one, and one of the 
measurements that we thought about was how many organizations, if you looked at their strategic plans, aligned on five, six, or seven things, mm -hmm. and are they working together? And that might be a measurement that we want to use in our community. And I think timing is important whenever you're talking about looking at a regional economy. Um, I once heard a quote by Winston Churchill that says that success is not permanent and failure is not fatal. Uh, we actually have to know when to make that adjustment, when we have to tweak some things, when we have to look at making decisions, not just in the five or 10 year span, but decisions that will affect us in 15 or 20 years. And that's some of the things that we don't do as far as long range strategic planning that we have to do as a region, as a community. And to Don's point about leaders not liking each other, you're always gonna have people that don't like each other. You know, but at the end of the day, to your point, we do have to do what's best for the region. So I try to aspire from what Dick Celeste once said, is never get so mad at a person that you can't wake up and have breakfast with them in the morning. So I, on the leadership subject, I've heard from young people, many of them in the millennial generation, who feel frustrated because they can't break into leadership opportunities or conversations here, or if they are in maybe lower level or mid-level leadership roles, they feel like they spend all day pushing a boulder uphill trying to sell whatever they need to sell to leaders above them and institutions above them, and, and it's exhausting. Um, so what can we as a community do to listen to and better cultivate a new generation of leaders? Well, I would tell you first and foremost, the funniest thing that I've run into since I've become an elected official is that I'm part of the establishment. <laughs> and it's, you know, some of the people like Harriet and other folks that know when I had hair and had an afro and used to protest, you know, that I'm the farthest away from being the establishment. But one of the things that I will tell you is that um, now is a good time for millennials and young people to really get involved in the scene. In the past, there were barriers because, let's, quite, let's be quite frank, in Cleveland, there was a lot of old money and there was a lot of old institutions that kind of held things in check. Well, for the first time, we're starting to see a transitioning starting to take place in the civic, in the uh, corporate, in the philanthropic uh, er arena, as well as in uh, religious and uh, nonprofit institutions. So now is a perfect time to bring some of those ideas to the forefront. That's why I say timing is so important for what we're trying to do as a region. And I would also add, it's, it's not easy. Um, we all were younger. Everybody in this room was younger yesterday than they are today. Mm -hmm. um, but we've all were at a place where we wanted to get involved and, and how you get engaged, there's no roadmap to that. Uh, I remember one night I um, brought Congressman Stokes to a group of millennials, probably about seven or eight years ago in the basement of um, some loft on 40th Street. And that was a the question. They wanted to know how did he do what he did? How had I done what I have done in order to get engaged? And he just encouraged them to find a cause, be passionate about it, speak up, and people will find you. And, and I heard this saying about our town a few years ago that uh, Cleveland is one place where if you're ready to get engaged, if you stand on public square uh, and look like you have some ability to do anything, people will grab you and say, hey, we need your help. But you gotta hope put your hand up. And I, I, I think there's less, as the councilman said, I think there's less of a roadblock today. And it's on us who are sitting at this table and other tables to uh, reach out and help people as well. I think that's um, true, that I think that a strong part of it is a willingness and to raise your hand and to uh, be seen. I also think that uh, if you are somebody who considers yourself in a position of power or influence in the city, um, and you find yourself having meetings with the same 10 people, and they might be the same 10 people that you had the meeting with 10 years ago, um, that maybe look around and think about 
how might this conversation be improved um, if, we, if I thought about who else to bring in? And not only bring people in who raise their hand, which I think is really important, um, but in the session before this, we heard about the, the simultaneous importance of making sure that you're, you're letting whoever you bring in have equal voice in the conversation. Um, because you're not, you're not bringing people in to be an observer. You're trying to get people integrated, engaged, and to move the boulder forward when you don't want to do it anymore. Um, and so I think that, yes, I think a huge part of it is finding your own agency. And I also think that figuring out how we're making room is a big deal. Um, a lot of the time when we talk about economic development in Northeast Ohio, we seem to be talking about real estate development or throwing corporate incentives at businesses that may be growing or maybe talking about leaving if they don't receive some assistance. But broad, inclusive economic development seems like it should be something bigger than that. Um, what role should local and regional government and uh, government partners play in trying to shape strategy and growth? I'll start. Uh, it has to be at the core of everything that's done relative to economic and community development. Um, because there's lots of people with, with different ideas, different agendas, uh, government represents the people. And it's really the only place who, at its core, in, and this is, I know this is in an idealistic world, uh, at its core represents, uh, is closest to the people and their desires, their wants. So, it, the, and also, it's the only place that has as much of the resources as any other entity uh, in the community. So, government has to be at the core but government also has to uh, understand and reflect what uh, some of the other institutional stakeholders are seeing and are striving towards. So there, there's, there's a balance there with government, but you can't do this. You can't drive economic development. I've never seen any place in all the, across the country, and I've spent a lot of time looking at economic development. You've never found a place that has been successful over a long period of time that hasn't had uh, hasn't had government at the core helping to drive things. Not necessarily take, leading and, and doing everything itself, but at least a, as a player and a stakeholder helping drive that development. And I think government has to have a role to advocate for the people, like you say. For example, I'll give you two examples. One is, in this very building that we're in, we have janitors that right now are looking to make sure that they remain unionized all across downtown because they are actually seeing if they are not in part of a union that their wages will not stay high. So government has to be the voice for some of the voiceless, for some of those people uh, that, are, that don't have a voice. Government also has to put policies in place in order to eliminate barriers. For example, the city of Cleveland, we have a policy called Ban the Box, which we believe had a uh, disparate impact on um, minority communities because if you have something to say, have you ever been convicted of a felony on an application, then a lot of times people are disqualified from jobs up front. We need to try to have those kind of policies and advocate for them in the corporate sector as well in order to make sure that everybody has access to good quality employment. Um, going back to the questions about leadership and strategy, I've talked to um, some people in Northeast Ohio who say, well, we need one organization and one clear strategy, and that's how we're going to be successful. I've heard other people say, well, we need a whole bunch of different leaders, lots of voices at the table, and maybe a more mixed strategy in order to be successful and not put all our eggs in one basket. Is there a right answer? Which one of those ways should we go? And if it's one organization, who should be in charge? 
We need, we need as many organizations as will actually get something done. It can be one or it can be a hundred. Part of, and I'm going to be blunt again, I really shouldn't be given a mic. Um, if you look at Cleveland, it was, it's a city that was built in the teens and the 20s for a much larger population. And there's uh, the infrastructure uh, is built for that. The, the, all of our organizations and institutions were built for that. We've not right-sized. So yeah, I think there needs to be some, some reduction in the overall number of institutions that are proposing to lead. There's a finite number of resources that this city has. It is, I think, probably the best resourced philanthropically city in the entire country, maybe enti the entire world. I don't think there is a city that has the philanthropic resources that we do, but we spread them, as I say a lot of times, we spread it like magic fairy dust everywhere. And because we don't have, we don't have organizations that lead us, I'm over-exaggerating, there are a number that do a really great job, but we don't have as many organizations that are effective at the follow-through, at making the change, the types of change that will change people's lives but also drive the economy, we spread these dollars way too thin. So we, I don't know the answer. Is it one? Is it 100? Whatever it is, they just need to be effective. And that way, we can take our dollars, those of us who sit on uh, philanthropic dollars, like at, at, at KeyBank, and put it so that it has the most impact. Yeah, I, I would agree. It's definitely not, in my view, it's not one. Mm -hmm. um, but it's multiple organizations that are aligned um, to a vision. And I think there are organizations in our city that attempt to do that. Um, Don's point about you know, being the city with the best philanthropy is absolutely, we may be the best in the world, but that also means there's lots of organizations that go after those dollars and sometimes uh, have very narrow focuses, may do great work, but are we getting the most efficient use of those dollars and being that narrowly focused? And so that's why the alignment, I think, is important. Messianic leadership is an old model. They have one organization or have one leader that everybody's going to jump on board and take us to the promised land is an old model. There's too many bright people, bright organizations, bright institutions in this city to rely on one institution to do that. That's why we have to diversify uh, the leadership structure in this community. But to that point, like Brian and Don are saying, we have to align our goals. And as a region, where are we headed as a region? And really buy into that. I think that's some of what Bernie is trying to do, Bernie Marino with blockchain. Are we going to all be in on this in order to try to move this region forward? And is this something we all buy into? We all mm -hmm. play a role and we all have a point that we have to kick in and have skin in the game. But we have to make sure that we uh, you know, not rely on one institution to carry us to the promised land. And, and I'd sure. like to point out the two tomorrow's report as one of those uh, mile markers or posts that we should all be moving for. Which tomorrow do we want to choose? I think mm -hmm. it's an excellent report that many organizations can move the ball forward on. So I'm going to hand this over to Dan now. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our radio broadcast or our, or our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our team will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are content coordinator, Bliss Davis, and membership and customer experience manager, Corey Isler. May we have our first question, please? First, first of all, thanks you all for a great uh, panel. 
and particular compliments to you, Mr. Graves, for bringing out the fact that let's leave personalities out of here and egos. That had to be said. You saw the response. My question, we keep hearing about uh, so many of our companies can't find employees. I heard something recently where Cleveland Clinic couldn't find some, where Swage Log and there are others go on. How, and if we can't find the employees, and we can lose those companies, or no, other ones won't come in. What are some specifics? And uh, there are some references to things you said today, but what are some specifics that we can do to address that fact that there are employers here who can't find employees? I think that um, there's a lot of people doing work in this area, and there are uh, many reasons employers can't find employees. A couple. One would be that uh, Don pointed out how much we've grown our footprint. Uh, that has not only meant that our infrastructure is too big for our population, but it also means that jobs and people are further and further apart. So uh, we hear a lot about businesses who can't find workers who are ready to show up for work on time. Part of that is a skill delivery issue, and part of that is it's too far. Um, there are some places in the, in the city of Cleveland, if a person wanted to get a job in Solon, um, in one of the manufacturing companies there, and they had to take a bus, it would take 90 minutes one way with two transfers. It's too far for a person to get to and from work, and so they can't connect. So there, um, there's a whole host of other things that have to do with uh, thinking about how to connect businesses to people, but I think a huge one that we have to work on is understanding how to better connect the mobility, uh, the different ways people are getting around to help people get to work more effectively, because there are people out there who want to work, and they're just physically disconnected from the places of employment. And Michelle, if I can, to Bruce's point, and I just want to illustrate this to you, is that when I was a person of lesser means, one of the things that I wanted to do is to live close to the rapid uh, because I wanted to be able, if my car broke down, that I could get to the train and get to the airport to the farthest part yeah. east that I could get to. And that's why transit-oriented development and trying to make sure that we put jobs close to transportation is so important and so critical. I would tell you that when you look at Swage Lock, for example, could you imagine a uh, person that lives in the central neighborhood that is charged with being out to a job at 5 a.m. in the morning and have a uh, old hoopty that they're trying to take back and forth up, uh, you know, I-77 or 422 and cars break down, you don't have reliable transportation, sometimes you have to rely on other people, and if you try to catch a bus, sometimes you have to catch three or four buses to get out there. So when you look at you know, with those kind of barriers that people have, uh, that's one of the reasons why, to, to Bethia's point, trying to make sure that transportation and how we look at our transportation system is critical. What the state of Ohio has done with transportation in this community is criminal, and uh, that's what we have to look at. If I, could, if I could add to that question, in addition to mobility, you know, there's a skills uh, matching, and there is an effort underway now, which Bethia mentioned earlier, uh, sector partnerships where employers, uh, training organizations, community organizations are working harder at what seems like a simple thing is to match those people without employment or underemployed with those jobs, but there's a, there's a skill up sometimes that's necessary, and um, there's sometimes barriers that we're unaware of or maybe just don't acknowledge. Um, so I think the, the new efforts towards that, which I've heard more and more about over the last few months, are on the right path, and I, I think they'll help to close that gap. And I think they also will help to close the equity gap that I talked about in the beginning, because the people, we have many people who, haven't, who are looking for opportunity, um, and there are opportunities that they could be matched with. 
yes, good afternoon. My name's Juan Molina Crespo, and I'm with the Hispanic Alliance on the West Side. And um, thank you so very much uh, for your comments and your insight this afternoon. Uh, I, I guess my, my question is, uh, with the upcoming 2020 census, the browning of America in terms of the Latino residents and migrants and immigrants coming into the Midwest, particularly Cleveland, and then in addition to that, the increase of Puerto Ricans into our community because of the diaspora fleeing both uh, the economic de devastation prior to the hurricane last fall. How is it that you see that component, this particular population and demographic impacting what it is that we're talking about here this afternoon in terms of the economic development of the region and of the entire state? So just, I'd just like to get some, some thoughts from all of you on that. I'll, I'll take a first crack at that. I think it's absolutely imperative for the region to be uh, very mindful about the way that the, this region and the whole country is changing demographically. And we have to do as much as we can to be inclusive uh, in terms of the way that we grow our economy. Uh, I'm gonna get the number wrong a little bit, but you can check, I did a blog post last week or the week before. If the country narrows that racial economic gap It'll, be, it'll mean an $8 trillion increase to our GDP. $8 trillion. So imagine what that means for this, for this region if we're able to make sure that, that, uh, that uh, our brown and black uh, residents are able to be included in the economy. It means that the entire economy is going to grow. So we have to find ways to make sure that uh, all the types of things that we talked about today and, and some, a, a number of the things that were pointed out in the two, two Tomorrows report. We have to find ways to make sure that we are uh, making ways for, pathways for them into the economy in ways that they can be just as economically viable as anyone else in, in our community. And I'd add what, get, what gets measured gets done. And in the strategic plan that I've worked on at the partnership, um, under both our talent area, our physical development, our business resource area, we're measuring both immigrant participation and minority participation for just the reasons that Don mentioned that you mentioned, Juan. And, and Juan, just do simple math. I mean, the fund for the two, uh, the, the, the funds uh, report clearly illustrates it. About $170 billion GMP locally, 70 million of that is, billion of that is uh, wages and salaries, and only 12 million of that is, if the numbers, if I had the numbers correct, are for um, non-white communities. And when you have a city that is almost, when you look at black and brown people, approximately 60 to 65%, the next census will probably tell us more about that. And then a county that has approximately uh, 35 to 40% minority population, it's essential if we're gonna grow as a region for the populations that you serve and that we're talking about uh, to fully participate in the economy. Yeah, um, and so I think that what we're all saying is that it matters a lot um, and that uh, as we have these conversations about economic growth, that we have to be deliberate about talking about how we're bringing people in and connecting them to work um, and that if we aren't deliberate and direct about saying that the discrepancies that we're seeing between white populations and uh, people of color, that if we're not deliberately talking about it and trying to address it, that we will find ourselves with an a continued exclusionary aspect. So I think we're constantly bringing it up and trying to think deliberately and directly about how we're bridging those divides. 
a minimum of what we should be doing. Uh, Rob Falls, Falls Communications, and uh, board member of the City Club. Um, first of all, this is one of the best panels I've seen in a long time. Uh, this is an honest exchange uh, of, of ideas, and uh, thank you for being at ground level versus 35,000 feet. I love these answers. Um, you talked a lot about the importance of local government and leadership. I'm going to ask you, how are we doing? Mm -hmm. Is county, mayor, and city council up to snuff? Are we doing well for all our people? Are we being inclusionary? And what do you think would be the number one thing they should all focus on together? <laughs> I think I'll do what our president does. I think we're doing pretty well. <laughs> uh, I don't know, ask our council president, council president Kelly. But uh, I, I think we have some learning to do. I think we have to really uh, be more innovative in our strategy as government, and we have to look at some ways to be out the box. Um, I think that uh, the county government is still in a learning process, that they're still going through some growing pains and learning pains. People forget that there's still a rather new constitution uh, that, is, that is in place. But I, I think that we're doing decent. I, I think that one of the things that people don't talk about enough is the fact that we have a collaborative a leadership model between the mayor of this city and city council. So you don't see the days where, uh, to use Don's point, where we're bucking heads and, and fighting with each other over the smallest of issues. We all, we all want the right thing for Cleveland. Uh, so I think we're doing well, but I do think that we always want to grow, we always want to do better, and we always want to be more innovative and more creative in our government model. I'll comment on, on some issues, and I, I am an optimist and glass half full person, but uh, I've been involved long, long enough, and so we've worked at the partnership and at the commission with the mayor on community benefit agreements. It was something that he wanted to see happen across the city to become um, a practice that meant that when there's a major project, we were concerned about local residents, we were concerned about minority participation, Hispanic and black participation, women participation. And it was, it's, it's been a great partnership. As Blaine mentioned, the county was not with us in the beginning, but it wasn't because they, weren't, they didn't want to be with us. It was because they needed to do a disparity study. They did that, they passed ordinances, and they're on board. So there's at least an example where, relative to equity in a particular area, both private and public sector are <coughs> rowing in the same direction. I just add two things. One, uh, if you look at, and I'm not singling out any part of our local or regional government, I'll just say, if you look at the governments across the country that are succeeding, uh, they, it, there is at some level a recognition of the things that they're not doing well and a willingness to take in ideas and uh, solutions on how to deal with those things that they're not doing well, not just to focus on the things that they are doing well. The second thing that I think is probably more important than uh, how well our local leaders, uh, uh, political leaders are doing is the support that we get from our state government. We have to have a, a, a governor who, who is elected next, regardless of party, who pays more attention and provides more resources to Northeast Ohio because we see the, what's happened with the amount of resources that have gone to Columbus and how well Columbus has been doing. Now there's a lot of other factors there, but uh, Columbus certainly has been over-resourced and, and Northeast Ohio has been under-resourced 
relative to, to, the, to the state government. So I think we need a, a bit more attention paid to this, uh, this community at, from, from the state. Yes, thank you very much, especially for your emphasis on inclusion. So I want to ask, uh, who is at the planning table? Uh, you have many uh, plans going forward, strategic plans uh, that have been done and will continue. Uh, are there low-income people at your table? Uh, and if not, why not? Uh, who represent, uh, for example, disinvested neighborhoods. We have uh, Neighbor Up with many uh, people participating in neighborhoods. This would be a resource. The other entity that I would ask about being involved is uh, the wonderful think tank that we have here in Cleveland, uh, Demo the Democracy Collaborative, which has raised many important ideas about not just looking at jobs and employers, but looking at changing some systems like worker-owned cooperatives, community banks, uh, building community wealth uh, that is uh, more democratic and leads to uh, less economic disparity and doesn't depend just on wages and job access. I, I think that's a brilliant question that you're asking, and, and I can just give you examples. When we had a recently had a supermarket, a Simon supermarket on Buckeye uh, Road that we just uh, that we just put in place. One of the groups that we used was the Neighbor Up strategy that we actually brought them in to say, "What do you want?" First of all, they were the ones that informed me that they wanted a full service supermarket, and uh, then what kind of services do they want? They don't want a traditional bank. They would like a credit union. So we're exploring ways to do a credit union because they feel that they would rather do a credit union than a traditional bank, especially while we have so many uh, payday loan systems in the area that are really, uh, you know, modern-day loan sharks, according in my opinion. So really making sure that poor people are at the table to have discussions and, 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 and is, is critical. That's the reason why you know I, I've always been a big fan of labor because I feel the one thing that they do bring to the table is that they make sure that low-income workers are at the table having discussions about the broader outcomes of what an organization needs. One of the things that I would commend to any, uh, any corporate leader in the room or listening uh, is something that, that we, and this is not a promotion for KeyBank, but that we at Key did as part of our community benefits plan, we created national and regional advisory councils. And those regional advisory councils are made up of organizations that, are, that represent local communities and local residents. Many times the folks who are actually are represented in our advisory councils, <coughs> excuse me, are those low-income residents that you're talking about. So it's critically important for us to get the type of feedback for us to be a successful and, and uh, a bank that supports the community to understand exactly what folks in the community are seeing, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and, and we can be more responsive to them. So that's just one example of a way for companies to, be, to understand what's going on in the community. 
My name is Janella Sims, and I am from SEIU Local 1. Um, my question, first of all, thank you all. Um, I am really enjoying the conversation, and I would like to see some actual outcome come out of the, you know, um, ideas that have been shared today. Um, specifically, Blaine, thank you for bringing light to labor, because um, I think a lot of times labor gets kind of tossed to the side. Um, my question is specific to real estate development in downtown Cleveland. In some instances, um, there's generally two kind of types of real estate development that's happening, right? There is um, new person buys a property or property is being built up from scratch. In some cases, when a new person buys a property, people that are currently at that property get displaced. So they want to save money. They're getting rid of the people that were in that property that had a good union job. In other cases, when the building is being erected from scratch, it's built union, but it's not maintained or managed union. My question is how do we take advantage of those benefit, um, com the community benefit agreements to ensure that people are one, not displaced from a good union job that they may have had, and more importantly, are part of the conversation so that the properties that are being built are sustained with good union jobs. I'll take a second. So um, when we began working on community benefit agreements, you're right, we worked, looked at major projects, and most of the major projects, um, the major building trade unions were, were being engaged. And um, part of the challenge of the way that it happened in Cleveland is that the idea of a policy like this came from both the mayor and from the business community, and we needed to engage the community because the community is the countersign signer to the agreement and we tried in a number of ways and had some success I'm looking at someone here who was on one of our community committees to educate the community on how to be the countersigner to a community benefit agreement and so I think you organize like you do in labor you think about what's best uh, you have council people who say if you're going to build in this area you need to engage the community on what the benefits are and we need more than what happens with the building of it. We need benefit to happen after the operation of whatever it might be goes forward. But that's a, that's a negotiation with an owner that can't be driven necessarily top down or legislated top down, but can be encouraged. And so I think that's an answer I would give. Hi, uh, Charles Patton here. Um, I had a friend in Cleveland um, a couple of weeks ago from Houston. We talked about how nice the city looked, uh, the growth in the city. But I had also been to Houston last year with him and saw the tremendous growth there. I'm wondering if you can share with us uh, the growth in Columbus, one city, one county government, not having 50 different cities to deal with. Is it time for us to look into consolidating? Is it a help or is it a hindrance? Uh, those industrial parks in the outlying communities of our city that at one time those
companies were in Cleveland. They moved out to the parks. They took something away from Cleveland and didn't grow this community. Do any of you have any um, opinions about that? And what, what's the future if we remain like we are? Or should we be thinking about regional government? At some level, we have to have at least shared services. The, 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 the fact is that we are spending, because we have 50-some jurisdictions in the region, or maybe it's 60, I don't know what the number is exactly, but because we have that many, it means that we are spreading our dollars very thin when we could have at least shared services. So I don't, the, 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 that, is a, that is a highly political question uh, and one that, you know, every, every voter in every jurisdiction has their own opinion. You know, they, they want to keep what's theirs. Um, we at least have to move towards uh, sharing services. I would, I would suggest that we should at le also at least look to consolidating some of the jurisdictions around the region because um, you don't have the ability to do the types of things at scale that you would need to do uh, to, to be more attractive for uh, the types of economic growth and investment that, that you need uh, without doing, taking those types of steps. Yeah, I would also say, um, I'm not going to answer whether or not we should consolidate, <laughs> um, but um, I would also say that um, in addition to thinking about shared services, there's a sense of really needing to see ourselves as part of a region as well as part of our own communities. And that um, part of what has happened with the spreading of people and the spreading of jobs is there was a lot of competition between places. Um, so instead of having net new growth, we had a lot of movement, a lot of company movement from one city to another, which really doesn't benefit us collectively. It benefits the company who's getting the tax break in the new place and the new land that they dug up. Um, but we need to think about things like um, how do we think about um, whether it's uh, revenue sharing between cities to disincentivize the movement um, from one place to another? Um, sensible land use policies that think about how do we preserve and protect uh, the places as they are because we value green space just like we value industrial space. Um, and then how do we um, think about uh, encouraging our state as well as our local officials um, to direct resources in a way that can build up and aggregate land in places so that redevelopment can occur in existing places, which is part of the, part of the problem with the spreading and the fragmentation um, is that we're leaving behind whole communities. And so I think we can get to a much better place without necessarily having to tackle the issue of whether or not we should be one government, um, but it does take some deliberate steps. Jerk, that's a question. That's a that's a panel in itself. But I will tell everybody that one of the things that we, if we do have those conversations, that people often are in a hurry to have conversations with Cleveland about our assets, water, our transit, our port, airport, and everything else. But then when it comes to asking if you want to also share some of the challenges that we have, like uh, some of the you know, criminal nuisances that we have in the educational systems that we have, people not in a hurry to have those conversations. So if we're gonna have a conversation about how we look at some of these things, we have to look at it in a holistic way and not cherry pick what we wanna be a part of and what we don't wanna be a part of. Very interesting that uh, Blaine made that point because uh, the President's Council, which was, I was a part of, did a study, I think it was in 2006, and it was about regionalism from an equi equity standpoint. 
And it was the exact same question. It's like, are we going to talk about the liabilities or just the assets? Are we going to talk about sharing challenges or just sharing revenue? And that was 2006, so it was 2018, and that report has been sitting. We're going to have to wrap it there. I'm, I know there's more questions. This is not the last time that we'll be discussing these issues at the City Club. That brings us to the end of our forum. Thank you, panelists. Thank you, Ms. Jarbo, for moderating. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for caring and being a part of this conversation. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.